Well, some uh, episodes are just really special because you talk about subjects that you're really, really excited about, really passionate about. And on Christ and Kingdom, we try to focus on subjects that are meaningful, they're theological, they're biblical, they're exegetical. We do a a bit of uh, Bible study. Uh, We exposit the word here. And we also talk about a range of subjects from apologetics, systematic theology, biblical theology, all the different aspects of Christian thought, theology that we love. And today, um, I'm joined once again by both uh, Mike Tiemann and Kevin Moore. And these guys have been working through the rich theology uh, that you can find over at the Reform Forum, and in particular, the lectures that are being delivered there by a friend of mine, Lane Tipton, Dr. Lane G. Tipton. And um, both Kevin and Mike have been working through uh, Tipton's work on Van Til, uh, dealing with apologetics and dealing with the Trinity. And so, guys, we want to discuss that a little bit today. We also wanted to see if we can make time for talking about the resurrection, which I think is a really important subject. Uh, but guys, welcome back to the show, and uh, tell me your thoughts on going through Lane Tipton's content. Yeah, man, it's been it's been rich. It's been deep. We were just kind of joking about, you know, as listening to Dr. Tipton's uh, videos, watching his videos, you know, they're, they're pretty short. Usually they're five minutes long, plus or minus a couple minutes. Uh, but usually have to watch each video three or four times just to really let it sink in. But then once you grasp it, like we were saying this last week is it's so profoundly simple and logical, right? It's just simple reformed truth, just getting brought to its conclusion and just getting set forth and just saying this, this is what it is. Right, no fluff, no, no mysticism added to it. Just this is God. Yeah, Amen. Yeah, that's I've been uh, as I've been listening. I, I've just been so blessed by the lectures, and um, I think Lane has just such a unique ability to bring these deep theological truths down to just the the, the common man and make them very very simple. You know, I mean, the first time I heard of Amelia, you know, I went to your church and I heard the Mountain of God. It was a, a seminar that he did, and I just walked away like thinking, "Wow, that was just such a deep theological truth." But he put it in such understandable language, and so it's been a blessing going through that. And obviously, as Mike said. Um, I need to listen to each lecture three or four times <laughs> to grasp things. But, well, we, but were, <laughs> I mean, we were talking about some of the stuff that you brought up, uh, Kevin, but um, where did we leave off? Because I think some, some of the points you brought up and questions that you brought up are super important. Yeah, just talking about obviously uh, Van Til and just uh, his presuppositional apologetics and how that was different than obviously Aquinas. And so even before, you know, about 15, 20 minutes ago, uh, we were talking about Aquinas and we were talking about nature and grace and just how that was different than obviously Van Til's presuppositional um, apologetics and just even with man made be made in the image of God, the covenant of works as well. And so I asked you, I was like, Emilio, could you summarize or give a one to two <laughs> sentence summary of nature and grace or Aquinas's um, apologetic approach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think for a lot of Christians, when they hear the terms nature and grace, they, they don't know quite what to do with that uh, because they're kind of new categories and new concepts. I know they were for me 
uh, when I first came upon reading uh, the concepts of nature and grace in Voss and uh, in others like Bavink. Um, and of course, that's what Dr. Tipton is really explaining in these lectures. And it's been a while since I've seen any of the lectures because I worked through those a while back. But uh, I do know that what is really central to the entire thought of Van Til is to give a comprehensive and uh, thoroughly Christian worldview when it comes to the issues not only of the Trinity, of course, but also of the Christian worldview in terms of apologetics. And what Van Til, one of Van Til's central purposes there is to, is, to, um, is to try to formulate an apologetic that is not rooted in uh, rationalism, not rooted in Aristotelianism, not rooted in Platonic thought, but rooted strictly on the, um, on the assumption of the Christian worldview as a whole. And that becomes very important. But when you're talking about worldviews, you know, you have, and this is something that Lane Tipton brings up a lot, but you really only have a few different approaches to all of these subjects. And he would kind of distill it down to either a discussion of Thomas Aquinas or a discussion of Karl Barth. And so Karl Barth representing modernism and modernist type theology. Um, and But really when it comes to uh, Aquinas, his view of nature and grace is completely different than our view of nature and grace as Christians. I would really encourage people to go and pick up uh, the volume by Herman Bavink. He has a volume there uh, where he discusses the issue, and, 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 um, and I think it's uh, volume one on the doctrine of God, but he, he talks about that Rome represents supernaturalism and that we do not have a supernaturalist worldview. And what he's talking about there, of course, is the situation in the garden, that Adam uh, is, um, he is created naturally, as it were, because of the image of God. He is created to know God. He's created to have religious fellowship with God. He communes with God. He's righteous, okay? Um, and, you know, for Aquinas, he doesn't believe that. Aquinas believes that those kind of virtues, as he calls them, are added later uh, by God as a supernatural gift that has come to be known as the donum superadditum. Sometimes you'll see the translation in Latin, donum superadditum. But at any rate, it is a supernaturally added gift, or really gifts, because what is added to Adam after his creation, contrary or in addition to his nature, becomes absolutely central and essential to Roman Catholic theology, leading you... See, if you talk to the typical Christian, evangelical, even many Reformed Christians about Catholicism, and I think the main thing they focus on is on things like, well, that, you know, Rome is teaching salvation by works, Okay or Rome is teaching the papacy, or they're teaching Mariolatry, or something like that. But little do they know that the root of all of this goes back to protology and eschatology. Because for Thomas Aquinas, at the very beginning in the garden, protology, there is a very distinct program of eschatology, and how man is going to advance forward. It's kind of incredible. But really, everything, guys, when it comes to the worldview level, is about how man is going to advance. How is man going to advance to the next level? I mean, just 
not to get too sidetracked here, but think about the modern day emphasis on technology, transhumanism, posthumanism, right? AI technology, nanotechnology. We're being told now by the same people that 50 years ago were telling us about the wonders of evolution, that now man will self-evolve through technology and advance himself through that medium. Well, there are other people with different mediums of advancement. For Thomas Aquinas, the medium of advancement is now through the sacramental system of Rome, which we don't agree with. Uh, But that has to do with the issue of nature and grace. What was natural to Adam is that he was made in the image of God, is that he was good, that he had free will, that he had the powers of reason, okay? But what was contrary to his nature is an actual right knowledge of God. He did not know God as he was. He did not know God in a religious fellowship. And he does not, uh, he doesn't have uh, a right, uh, re- not, not only knowledge of God, but he doesn't have religious communion with God. There is no, uh, there's no spiritual life in Adam yet. Those things are supplied to him through this supernatural added grace. Now, when Adam sins, um, what happens at the fall, you guys, is not like what we grew up reading. Let's say we grew up reading Wayne Grudem. We grew up reading Louis Burkhoff or, you know, those kind of systematic theologies, right? Um, and what we learned in there is that at the fall, Adam and his entire nature was corrupted and that he became a fallen creature. His, you know, uh, Luther speaks about the bondage of the will, right? Well, uh, Thomas Aquinas doesn't believe that. He has elements of semi-Pelagianism where man, even in his fallen estate, still retains his original, here's nature, original goodness, original righteousness, right? He still has some reasoning powers within him, okay? So that through the use of natural reason, completely independent of God and the Spirit, Adam can reason through the things that are created, what Thomas Aquinas called sensible objects, And he can, through a process, reason back to the original cause of everything. And what we're saying is that that is absolutely not the situation in the garden. (laughs) Adam is created with what Charles Hodge uh, would call concreated knowledge and righteousness of God. Right? It was concreated because what Hodge is saying is that it is created and it is, in a sense, it is, it is commensurative with his nature. Uh, so that at the moment that Adam was born, I like to say that because, of course, in Luke, Adam is called the son of God. And so when, when Adam was born as the son of God, Upon his first breath, Adam knows God, Adam has communion with God, Adam uh, enjoys religious fellowship with God, and, and then immediately upon his creation, he receives, not the donum superadditum, but he receives the word of the covenant, which is in Genesis 2, verses 15 to um, 17 which we now, in Reformed theology, identify as the covenant of works, right? 
And pending that perfect, entire, exact personal obedience, here's the confessional theology, right? Upon his perfect obedience to God's covenant, God's law, Adam can advance through eating the tree of life and into the heavenly realm. And that is a complete, distinct eschatology. That's a total, distinct anthropology. And so what Lane Tipton is doing, I think, very good, because there's a lot of people in the church right now that are enamored with Thomas, because he's very good on some aspects of the doctrine of God, on Christology, the hypostatic union, and a lot of things, Thomas is just absolutely... I spent the other day reading Thomas all day long, and guys... He is absolutely brilliant. There is no way around it, okay? But, but just because he gets aspects of the doctrine of God, the Trinity, hypostatic union, those kinds of things correct, aseity, simplicity, pure act, those kinds of concepts, that doesn't mean he gets everything right. <laughs> he absolutely does not. You got to remember, Thomas is building on the tradition of the fathers. So, of course, Thomas is going to have an orthodox Nicene Council of Nicaea, he's going to have a Nicene understanding of the Trinity, of course. But when it comes to these thorny issues regarding nature and grace, protology, eschatology, and of course, soteriology, Thomas is the antithesis of Reformed theology. Yeah, could you so, speak a little uh, bit more on that, just in terms yeah. of like where Thomas was at, just for obviously our, our listeners, um, just where he was at on on soteriology, on how to be justified, that type um, of his theology there. Yeah, for Thomas, uh, it, he is uh, he is a Roman Catholic committed to the sacramental identity of the church and the way that that Adam, who fell in the garden and lost the donum superadditum, the supernatural gifts of religious fellowship with God, righteousness before God, true knowledge of God, the only way that that is restored now is through the sacramental means of the church. And therefore, this, and this introduces us right into what we do know about Rome, most of us, and that is that it is a works-based righteousness. And so... Uh, you know, Thomas uh, may articulate things that sound at times like he gets it, but at other times he is explicitly clear that without the sacramental aid of the church, man will not be righteous, the donum will not be restored, and we will never be a, a good enough uh, to have religious fellowship with God, to have a relationship with God and ultimately to return to God. You know, uh, Thomas taught this concept of the exodus and reditus of man, right? So the God is the man comes from, from God in creation as an exodus. He comes from his maker, and there is a return, a reditus, where through the sacramental reproportioning of man's nature, okay, uh, then man will return back to his creator. You see, when we started out, maybe I don't know how much longer you guys want me to go on this, but when we started out, it's important for us to understand that for Thomas, the problem with Adam at the moment of his creation is that he is not proportioned to know God. Adam is not proportioned to enter into the presence of God 
he has to be reproportioned. His nature has to be um, has to be changed. And this too is a different soteriology because we don't believe, guys, that upon glorification we will be reproportioned, changed to such an extent as um, as Thomas teaches clearly in Volume One of the Summa that. Man will have, listen to the language very carefully here, man will have a direct apprehension and a direct participation in the essence of God. We don't believe that. We, uh, Herman Bavink, in his uh, wonderful work on the, on the doctrine of God, in his Reformed Dogmatics, uh, Herman Bavink calls this a melting fusion between God and man. In other words, there, there are hints of pantheism and deification that are going on there that both Bavink and uh, Calvin and, you know, uh, Voss and Van Til, they want to avoid all of that because man will never, even upon glorification, we will never have a direct uh, participation in the essence of God. We, we just will not. The creator-creature distinction is blurred when it comes to Thomas. We know that the Bible teaches that God is ineffable, incomprehensible. He is eternal. He's transcendent. That God alone dwells in unapproachable light. That the, 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 there is no way that the creature will ever have a direct apprehension of the essence of God. God is invisible. God is not a man. God cannot be fully known in his essence, despite, uh, uh, apart from what he reveals of himself. And when we go to heaven, that creator-creature distinction does not go away. And so that is, those are some of the dangers of the thoughts and the thought patterns and the theology of Aquinas, is it leads to this melting fusion a disintegration of the distinction between the creator and the creature through this direct apprehension of God's nature, God's essence. So a lot of theology there, you know, it's important for us as Christians to know this because books are coming out, all sorts of Thomistic studies are happening right now uh, in the church. Um, what do you a lot think, of people are talking about it. But what do anyway, you think, yeah, uh, What do you think yeah. is the, uh, the cause behind that? Just the... Um the fascination with Aquinas, and um, and then also I would I would ask you this: um, speak to the dangers of going down that path. Yeah, I don't know that I can give a historical sort of uh, presentation of what has led us to the last twenty years or so, where there just seems to be an explosion in Thomistic studies again. Um, you can blame it on the ecumenical movement. You can blame it perhaps on universities and seminaries. You can build, you can blame it on the way that academia is all, you know, sort of, uh, structured, uh, leading people to a more Roman Catholic, uh, uh, sort of approach to things and an ecumenical approach to things. But the reality is, is that when you reject the ref- what I have called, <laughs> and, and, and Lane Tipton likes to talk about the, the, um, the deeper Protestant conception, which is Voss's structure of eschatology, which is perfect, in my opinion. 
But what Lane Tipton provides in his book on, on Van Til is what I have called the reform path. And once you're off that reform path, okay, the, again, the options come down to either uh, an approach like what Karl Barth is attempting to do, which again, rejects a reformed understanding of nature and grace. And we don't have time really to get into that, but, but or a Thomas Aquinas approach to nature and grace. And again, the new study in the doctrine of God and these kinds of things have led people uh, to go back in time, and here's a key word, to retrieve, it's called the retrieval movement, or resourcement, where you are going back to the fathers, back to the Antinocene fathers, you're going back uh, to the scholastics, here you're talking about Again, uh, Peter Lombard, you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, Aquinas is obviously the high point. You're talking about these kind of thinkers, and you are retrieving their thought and what has now been come to be known as the great tradition, advanced by proponents like um, uh, Craig Carter, Matthew Barrett, Scott Swain, these kinds of guys. And guys, a lot of really good Trinitarian theology, a lot. Um, you know, there's James Dozal, who wrote a wonderful book called All That Is In God. I pretty much, I, I don't know how or where I can really fault what James Dozal did there. There's really, really, um, there's really a controversy there. There's, there's some very, very passionate opinions on both sides of that issue, mainly dealing with the doctrine of simplicity, uh, you know, that God is not comprised of parts, God is not comprised of passion. So we're thinking of God's simplicity, God's impassibility, uh, that God is pure act, meaning God is fully actual, fully realized. God does not become something. God is not in process. God is not in a developmental mode with creation. All of these issues, guys, are at stake when you dive into Thomistic studies. That's why it's important. And we're asking here on, on a more Vantilian approach of things, we're asking, what is the biblical reformed alternative? And that's where I hope my, I hope my phrase catches on. And that's why we need the reform path. Because the reform path, as I see it, guys, is going to take us Vantil, Voss, uh, Bavink, Turretin, Calvin, and that really is the reform path for us. And from Calvin, we have to make a connection to the, to the early church. And so for me, the arc point, the bridge, as it were, is Calvin and Augustine, not Augustine and Thomas. And so that's, that's kind of where I stand. Look, there's a lot of really smart guys out there that are in this field, a book that, had, that helped me a lot is a book that was written by Brandon Ellis on Calvin and the Aseity of the Sun. Um, one of the hardest books you'll ever read. I've read the book probably three times because I've had to reread every page at least three times. <laughs> so, you know, does that count? I mean, I had to read it like three times every page. I don't know if that means I read the book three times, but you know what I mean. I just immersed myself in that book to really try to understand how did we get? How do we get to this theology of the aseity of the son? That the son is just as much ase as the father. Uh, the aseity of the son just means that 
the doctrine of aseity, right, just means that God is independent, that God is of himself. Even of himself is really not even a good word. But that essentially speaking, we're talking about God's essence, God's in, in terms of his divinity, not personal subsistence. We're not talking about distinctions in the persons. We're talking about essential participation, okay? There, at that level, the Son is as much Ase as the Father. And so each member of the Godhead is Ase. Well, not everybody agreed with Calvin, but I think Calvin, uh, I think Calvin is right. So, you know, these huge issues, and then you asked me, Kevin, something about the danger of all this. And I think the danger of, you know, I heard a thing by James White where he articulated his concerns, and I got to agree with some of his concerns in terms of folks that are going to be studying Thomas, retrieving from Thomas things that are good. Thomas on the immutability of God is profound. But then as you go from Thomas, you're going to be concluding that the man that is teaching you such high theology on the doctrine of God, perhaps he's right on other aspects of doctrine. And maybe he is. But you must understand, and this is, I think, a central burden for Tipton. I know it is because I've talked to him extensively about it. But for Lane Tipton, a central burden is going to be, you can't just cherry pick Thomas. <laughs> if you think you're just going to go and resource and retrieve what you want out of Thomas with no entanglements is, is, is kind of naive. Because for Thomas, guys, I cannot stress this enough, everything for Thomas is eschatology. Everything for Thomas is eschatology. How man returns to God, and what does that ontology look like? So, probably heavier theology that most of our listeners are going to. I'll probably get a few questions at church <laughs> on this one, but you know, for people that know me, I've spent quite a bit of time on all this, and uh, I'm still wading through it. Um, there's no, you know, there's there's no one book or there's no one thing that you can, you know, go read real quick to, to get a comprehensive understanding of the issues involved. But I think probably Lane Tipton right now would probably be the seminal thinker in this area. And look, man, I mean, Van Til had a profound effect on me back in 2001 when I was having an epistemological meltdown over my apologetic method that I was not comfortable teaching that there's a high probability that God exists or that there's a really, really good chance that Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> you know, put the quarters on the state of Texas and the probability is like, well, you turned over the right quarter. I'm sorry, it's still not enough. Um, as Van Til says, in a universe where facts never stop coming in, right? If the facts are never in. And they, it's an endless flow of information in the world in which we live. Probability is not enough. Furthermore, probability is just not what we're taught, we're not taught to teach that in the Bible. And so I was like, wait a minute, I read the Bible and I hear about full assurance of faith, no doubting, no wavering. That doesn't sound like we're teaching a probable God. You know, Elijah the prophet does not behead the prophets of Baal because there's a real good chance they're wrong. 
<laughs> hey, Emilio, can I? Yeah, yeah, can come I, in. Yeah, can I yeah. step in here? I mean, yeah. Kevin and I, we're, we're serving just as ear candy a part of this, uh, you know, podcast here tonight and, and listening to Emilio's uh, teaching. But if I could, I could step in really and try to help summarize it, put some, put some, uh, cookies on the bottom shelf for us. Really, it's, it's a clash of worldviews. And, and you're, we're proposing three worldviews, a, a modernistic Bart, you know, Bart worldview, an Aquinas worldview that would, would, would lead towards Catholicism, and a Reformed worldview that we would argue would be biblical. Now, when you're talking about, you know, we, we threw out a bunch of big terms, small terms, terms that, that are confusing, nature, grace, protology, yeah. eschatology, yeah. those type of things. And we're talking about nature, grace, and, and protology, study of first things. Uh, we're talking about pre-fall, creation, how Adam was created, and the argument is there's two completely opposite paths of understanding from a Thomas Aquinas path than a reform path. That's that's the purpose of what you're say, talking about nature. How how was it naturally? How was Adam naturally created by God? Right? Was there a, a drift, a natural drifting away from it within Adam, or was as Van Til and Tipton is is communicating from a reform perspective that Adam was enveloped in a revelation saturated relationship from natural revelation to special revelation through the covenant uh through through providence and all that in this knowledge of god in the original created context pre-fall right so that's what we're going down back to and then from that the fall gets entered into the equation in aquinas there's there's a different path in the reform path there's a different path, and that's what you're you're getting at. And those two paths lead in in absolute opposite directions, which brought you to the conclusion that that th- there's danger here, right? You're going to end up a Catholic, and you're going to end up in a in a works based trying to earn your way and rationalize your way towards sanctification and everything else that comes with it. You're going to end up with some sort of modernistic whatever, you know, that path leads you to, or you're going to end up with reformed doctrine that takes you to the cross and where Christ now provides and brings you back into relationship, into right relationship. Would that be an accurate summary? Yeah, I think that's very helpful. I think that's really good, Mike. And I would just maybe uh, add a few things to that. Protology technically, is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, okay? And some, even, uh, uh, you, you'll, you'll read some, Meredith Klein would extend that all the way to Genesis 11, okay? But really, protology is dealing with the situation in the garden, what happened pre- and post-fall, because there we have the entire covenantal structure of man, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and it's, you're absolutely fundamentally right that this is a worldview distinction. And the question that we're asking is this, is there a synthesis? Is there a synthetic theology that God wants us to have? No. God does not want us to have a synthetic compound of biblical theology 
Aristotelian logic, Aristotelian rationalism, Platonic dualism, or anything of the sort. He does not want us to synthesize or synchronize these worldviews. That's why Van Til, even in his book, The Defense of the Faith, he even argues for a more consistent Calvinism, because he even found in the writings of some of the Calvinist giants, B.B. Warfield and others, uh, Francis Schaeffer, still some sort of synthetic element in their worldview that he wanted to disavow completely and say, we don't need it. Uh, we just need 1 Corinthians 1 to 3. And 1 Corinthians 1 to 3 is a comprehensive, cosmological superstructure of a worldview analysis, a worldview critique. There is there the structure that we need for our apologetic, for our understanding of eschatology, for our understanding of the two-age structure of the Bible, for our understanding of covenant history. It's all there, right there. Amen. And I just picked First Corinthians as just one example of what you can get from different passages of Scripture. You do the same thing out of Acts 17. Acts, Acts chapter 17, same exact thing. You have covenant history on display. You have, uh, you have what Van Til called the fact and the framework. You cannot interpret facts independently of the framework. You cannot have a framework without God-interpreted facts, which just simply means because God knows all things, he knows himself, he alone can actually predicate in terms of what is ultimately true. And so um, you're absolutely right. It's a worldview clash. It's a worldview distinction. And we're simply asking, is a... Uh, a Thomistic approach to all these issues, is this apostolic? Is this Pauline? Is this Christ and the apostles? Is this canonical? Is this biblical? Um, and, you know, of course, we would say, no, no, it's not. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of funny, but when you read Thomas, like I've been reading him, um, man, his use of scripture is often just atrocious. Uh, you just get these scriptures that he uses out of left field uh, and that he claims supports a radical notion about causality and, and nature, grace, and being, and, and uh, uh, in, you know, just uh, all sorts of different things. And you're just like, is that really what John is talking about there? Essential apprehension of, the, of, of man, you know, having a reproportioned mind to apprehend the essence. And you look at you look at these passages and you're just like, that, that's just not what that's teaching at all. And uh, a healthy dose of John MacArthur could have done Thomas Aquinas really good. <laughs> but, could you, uh, uh, yeah, Amelia, I'd love to yeah. um, speak into just the difference between the classical versus the presuppositional apologetical approach. Yeah, well, classical apologetics is somewhat built on, you know, I would say largely built on Thomas Aquinas and his five ways, right? That there are five different distinct paths that um, get you to some sort of bare theism. And whether it's the ontological path, the argument of being, the necessity for existence, those kinds of things, the teleological path, as you look at the design, the order of creation, that leads you to a primary cause 
who is the designer of all things. And so all of these different, the moral argument of God, right? You go through all of these, and these are all based on rational deductions that Thomas admits in, um, in his own development of these paths, they don't get you to God. Uh, and they don't get you to the Trinity. They don't get you to, the, to salvation in Christ. Um, and they absolutely get you to generic theism, okay? And so then the question becomes, are we supposed to argue, look, um, you look around the world, something must have created all of this, right? Um, or are we to argue in such a way to leave the sinner with no other option but to conclude that only the Christian worldview can account for why we can have intelligent design in the first place. And of course, um, for Van Til, the burden of apologetics, this is so important. A lot of people don't understand this. The burden of apologetics is that really the presuppositional apologetics, guys, is built on a particular distinct philosophy of history. And that throws people off because they hear history and they're like, what are you talking about? Right? I thought we were arguing philosophically and now you want to talk about history. Well, Van Til is not talking about archaeology and history that way, you know, old bricks in the desert. What he's talking about is a redemptive historical framework to understand cosmology. And so he's going to take you to Acts chapter 17 and show you that in fact, in order to get to the resurrection and the call to repentance at the, you know, at the end of Paul's debating the Athenians, what does he have to do first? He has to construct a new cosmology. He has to tell them, <laughs> now I don't, well, first of all, you don't know what you're doing because you're worshiping the unknown God. <laughs> so it's like you built a monument to your ignorance, right? But beyond that, he begins with what? God created the whole world out of one man. <laughs> now, this is a question for you. Is that a common notion shared among Stoics, Epicureans, and Christians? Absolutely not. They don't believe in Adam. <laughs> they don't believe in the protological story of Genesis. And so Paul is literally reconstructing their worldview <laughs> in order so that the resurrection is not just a one-off fact, but that the resurrection is demonstrated to be absolutely logically coherent within a biblical cosmology, a view of the world, which begins in a redemptive historical structure. So, which is covenant history, guys. It's covenant history. And so he gives a covenant history of the world going back to a federal head, Adam, and then gets to the second Adam in the resurrected Christ. Incredible. And what we're saying in presuppositionalism is that that is the way we have to debate people. We can't just reason one factoid at a time. Because as Van Til said, there are endless facts. They never stop coming. And so there always will be a way out for people to get out and say, well, we, don't, we just don't know that yet. <laughs> you know, we're still developing that. Evolution, give it another million years. Maybe we'll find out 
that we are living in a simulation, that we're just programmed, you know, by a higher, you know, some geek in the lab somewhere. You know, that's the kind of thing where a more indirect argument is appropriate. To ask that person, whoever they are, not the questions of classical apologetics. Hey, don't you agree the world is moral? Don't you think that there is a moral lawgiver that gave all these morals, right? Well, he's just going to point you to pygmies in Africa, right? That slaughter their, their, their children on some pagan altar and say, I don't know, the world doesn't seem very moral to me. You know, there's people doing unconscionable things. Some people don't think, you know, uh, I mean, there's plenty of postmodern people in the world that don't have any ultimate morality. They seem to be able to balance their checkbook and live a happy life. <laughs> I mean, so not everyone's going to agree to these, uh, you know, to, to the, uh, the logic uh, that leads to, you know, a first cause, a moral lawgiver, a designer, you know, these kind of things. And even if they do, uh, the example of Anthony Flew, right? Famous atheist, became a theist, and then died. And then professors over at Biola and other places they hailed that as a victory. So, oh, Anthony Flew was convinced that life is too tech, the world is too technical. There's too much design. It's too intricate. DNA, all of that. It's too, you know, uh, it's too mind-boggling for everything to just happen by accident. So he believed in a some kind of first cause, an ultimate first cause, probably a creator, but. What did Anthony Flew believe in the end? That we will never know this creator, whatever he or she may be. That, that's not Christianity. That's not, that's not a victory for us. You know what I mean? Emilio, so, that, that context of classical versus... Oh, by the way, forget the, forget the resurrection. <laughs> we'll have to do that yeah. next time. <laughs> we, we were going to talk about the resurrection tonight. And, I know, I'm looking at it, 42 it minutes in, a, right? <laughs> took a left turn. In the context of classical uh, versus presuppositional apologetics and going back to what we're talking about with Aquinas and and Van Til and -hmm. those type of things, are are you arguing that the classical presuppositionist is, is... Wait, 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 wait. That, that, wait a minute. You Sorry, said classical. Sorry, I, I totally messed that up. <laughs> classical apologetics. Big words all get mixed. Split, hey, split yeah. them up again because those people fight all the time. So don't lump them together. Classical <laughs> apologetics yeah. being built from an, a, a, a Thomistic view of, of Adam being created to rationalize himself up to God. Presuppositional yep. apologetics being from the foundation that man was created with the Imago Dei, right? There's inherently an image of God within man. Um, so can, can you expound that just a little bit? Yeah, it's Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Man knows the truth, but he suppresses it in unrighteousness. And Adam, before the fall, he absolutely knew the truth. Um, what does Colossians say? You know, Colossians 3.10. What does Ephesians talk about in terms of, you know, being transformed into the image of God that, you know, that there's righteous, true righteousness and holiness? 
It's what Adam had at the very beginning, true righteousness and holiness. And that wasn't lost at the fall? Uh, that was lost at the fall, of course. All and of what that about our understanding of God? Right. The, the image of God was not lost at the fall because the image of God is literally the nature of man, right? But what was concreated with that image definitely was marred and, and, and perverted, polluted, and corrupted, right? So that it needs to be restored, uh, you know, but unlike what uh, Thomas says, it's not restored through sacramentalism. It's re- restored through union with Christ, of course, mm. right? Um, so, but yeah, I, I think that's good. I, I, that that kind of shows you just how deep it goes, right? That it goes all the way into this nature-grace distinction and that those who typically are borrowing from a Thomistic uh, let's say a, a let's say a Thomistic philosophy, epistemology, ethics, and 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 uh, eschatology. Uh, they are inheriting Thomas's dependence on Aristotle and therefore Platonic thought to a certain degree, and that dualistic Platonic thought was incapable always at every point, incapable of reconciling ultimate truth because it had no way of bridging the gap between, you know, if you go back to Plato, right? I mean, you can't, he cannot bridge the gap between the world of forms and the world of, uh, uh, you know, the world of accidents down here or, you know, uh, temporal experience, right? He cannot reconcile ultimate, what is ultimate? What is, and he was an idealist, therefore. Ultimate reality is the ideal. What is temporal down here, it doesn't matter, Right? And so that gave birth to gross perversions of worldviews, like, like uh, Gnosticism and Docetism, right? Gnosticism, therefore, okay, so Plato's right, dualism is right. What matters is mind or spirit, therefore, crude flesh is irrelevant, it's worthless. And what you do with it, for some Gnostics, they became ascetics. They've abused their body in the name of spirituality, or they became hedonists, and they gave themselves over to uh, immorality. It always leads to ethics. It always leads to behavior, and it's never good. And therefore, um, you know, when you start going down these paths of uh, dualistic thinking or these other... Un- or univicist ways of thinking, right? Uh, where for Thomas, if man apprehends the essence of God directly, there's a sense of univicism. There is that man and God are in some sort of univocal existence, and that is also very problematic. And so Van Til advanced the notion of analogical thinking. We think the thoughts of God after him, but we never at any given point think God's direct thoughts, because that would mean that we have God's mind, and that would mean that we are God, and we can't have that. We cannot have that kind of univicism. So anyway, um, you know, these, these worldview issues, though, they're ve- they are very important. There's no way I go on a college campus, as I've done for years, right? 
and I had and I had until COVID ruined everything. But you know, as I was there, if I don't have this robust presuppositional worldview, there's no way that I go there with uh, just trading facts all day because it, it will never end. So when you when you go in evangelism context, uh, you know, from a presuppositional uh, approach, you can walk up to somebody and recognize I don't have to I don't have to do this mudslinging factual thing. I could just proclaim the gospel because my theology tells me this person was made in the image of God. You know, they're in rebellion to God. Right, they're suppressing the truth of God. I, I'm able to apply those theological truths uh, and understand my role here is now just to get to the gospel. Is that is that? I think that's freeing. Yeah. Yes. And and um, no, it, it is. But you know, I, I depend a, a lot on First Corinthians because I think there we have a super super important, robust apologetics passage there, and. When the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where's the wise, where's the scribe, where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? When he says that there, that is a form of pushing the antithesis. Uh, that is a form of saying, can the wise, the scribe, the debater of this age, can they actually give an account According to their worldview, can they actually give an account of things or not? And so this is what Van Til was big on, pushing the antithesis, or what he called arguing by way of presupposition, right? Is forcing your opponent to give an account for the things that they espouse. And what that does is that quickly reduces every time, guys, every time without fail, reduces your opponent to a, an inescap inescapable dialectic, rationalism and irrationalism. And they will always toggle between the two. <laughs> They'll always toggle between rationalism as they tell the Christian, why should I believe that? Why? What's a good reason? What's the logic behind that? Where's the evidence for that? What proof do you have for that? And then they go back to irrationalism when I ask them things like, how do you account for meaning, morals, beauty? How do you account for these issues? Where, where do the laws of logic come from, for example? I don't need to know that. Nobody knows that, and nobody cares. That's irrationalism. <laughs> so on the one hand, they want absolute rational thinking, but when you push the antithesis, they divulge to an irrational position, and by then they've not even thought, well, what position am I? Am I, because I'm irrational now, am I an intuitionist, right? Am I, um, am I subscribing to some sort of subjectivism of some kind, existentialism? And by then they have absolutely no idea what worldview they even have. And so Van Til backs you up even further and says, yes, what you're looking at there is people who are not epistemologically self-conscious, or what I call simply being self-aware. And that's where, as Christians, we have to provide for them this worldview critique, and we have to supply them with, hey, look, given your worldview, you don't even know 
why you're here. You don't know why you exist. You don't even know why you're on college in college getting a degree. You can't account for the smallest things or the biggest things in your life. And uh, I have so many videos on YouTube that people have probably watched, but where people do exactly that. You know, I have one girl that says, uh, just because there's no meaning in the world doesn't mean I'm not doing meaningful stuff with my life. (laughs) And so I tell her, you know, I think you need to rethink your worldview. (laughs) She goes by, you know, you don't know anything. I don't know anything. There you go. There's the rational, irrational dialectic. And then she says, bye, I'm out of here. I'm going to go study physics, something that actually matters. (laughs) And and by that point, you guys can finish the rest of the debate, (laughs) right? Because you could just point out, of course, why why are you doing physics if nothing matters? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I think that's good stuff. Kevin, you have anything you want to add? I'm just listening, man. This is great. So, no, I love the yeah, discussion on Aquinas. I love that and just yeah. the, the different, uh, uh, the path that it leads to. Um, just, um, you know, I, Mike, you had sent on, uh, I think James White had, I forget who he was talking to, but just the fact of the, the matter of James White even talking about individuals now going into Roman Catholicism just based on studying Aquinas and, you know, as Emilio, as you said, um, you know, here's a guy who is uh, so maybe sound on the doctrine of God, but if he's, if he's sound there, why am, why aren't I taking what he says about justification or, um, you know, salvation as well. And Uh, just that the danger of that. Well, I'll give you an example. One of my last conversations with Lane, Lane Tipton guy, you, you guys have been watching. He tells me that there is a forthcoming volume coming out by some very popular, well-known Reformed authors who are going to be putting out a book on how Thomas Aquinas helps us to understand the sacraments. Uh, It's unbelievable. And so now here you have Reformed authors who are getting ready to foist on the church a Roman Catholic perspective of sacramentalism, that's the, very, that's the very antithesis of our worldview. I mean, Thomas Aquinas believed that as you take the Lord's Supper and the body and blood of Jesus are transmuted, that technically speaking, the unbeliever that eats the bread and the wine, technically speaking, are actually imbibing the physical body and blood of Jesus. (laughs) Even though, according to him, they don't do it spiritually. They do it uh, carnally. I mean, this is the person we're going to learn about dimensions of sacramentalism now? Uh. I, I've just been, I don't know, guys, you know, I've, I've had a burden now for several years. I, I'm not claiming, I'm not a gatekeeper of any kind, but I've just had a burden now for several years to steer people in a different direction, a direction I think is, is more in keeping with the reform path. And that Lane Tipton has laid out in this book on the Trinity 
Um, and, you know, right now for me, people need to be very, very aware of the dangers of what's happening with Thomas and these kinds of things. And it's just something we need to be very, very, very careful about. We need to be, everyone needs to, everyone needs to be vigilant uh, and what's going on? Because you're gonna you're gonna be getting the books from Crossway. You're gonna be getting the books from Baker. You're gonna be getting the books from Hendrickson. You're gonna be getting these books. They're gonna have nice covers. They're gonna be written by famous people and well well respected authors, even. And and they're gonna be opening up these gateways now to at least some form of virtual ecumenicalism. And. The way I've been thinking about it lately is if if men in the past were were not um, if they if they were not immune to have to fight and battle these ecumenical waves, neither will we be. And so we we have to be just as vigilant as you know guys back in the seventies, eighties, and nineties as right now. You know, so so yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Good place to end the show, or should we go another hour on the resurrection? (laughs) (laughs) I think, amen. I think it encourages us to know that we need to think better, and we need to do better and do better Bible study um, and and cling to the confessions, cling to the safety safety ropes uh, that were established by you know, phenomenal reformed men of God that came before us. Um, and there's safety there. It's okay to read. It's okay to, 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 to think about these things, but we come back to established confessional truth of the Bible. And that's where we need to stand. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, that's really great. And I think that we need to also be willing to have a realistic approach to history going all the way back to the fathers because I've seen, I've kind of seen this before. We're all part of Calvary Chapel at one point in our lives. We all went to the same Calvary Chapel and we saw a tremendous influx of Eastern Orthodoxy. We saw, we know people personally who were swept into that error and a lot of it was done in the name of, oh, you're not historical enough. You're evangelical. And, and certainly, we, we, all three of us now, at, at the place in which we're at now, we're, we're, we're just completely away from Calvary Chapel at this point, right? Like we're, more, we're much more comfortable in the Reformed tradition, of course. But, you know, but not that Calvary Chapel does everything wrong or whatnot, but it's evangelical. We are Reformed. And... But they would say, hey, look, you're just evangelical. You're ahistorical. There's not enough historical theology in your movement. You're detached from the history of the apostolic church. And there is a form of retrievalism going on in that, in that direction. And that's not good. And in the same way, the retrieval movement that's going on right now through the scholastic path of Thomas is also not good and also has pitfalls and dangers uh, that lead you to a more Roman Catholic worldview and entanglements. 
And uh, it may be east and west, but it's still not good, right? And so um, it's not that we deny that, you know, the historic Orthodox Christian faith did not survive through the apostolic, or, or excuse me, through the scholastic period. Of course it did. Um, and we may not be the final judge of all of these scholastics and whether or not they went to heaven or hell, but we're just talking about their writings and what they actually wrote and what they were committed to. And we've got to be willing in that humility to say, historically, we are developing, I'll give you maybe just one little example, eschatology. If you go back to the reform period all the way through the Puritan era, I mean, I, I, I know because I've recently said this to a friend, and eschatology is a mess in, 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 that, in those centuries. You have all kinds of wild ideas, I mean, all the way up to Jonathan Edwards. You've got all sorts of wild concepts, allegorical, inter- I'm not, we're not talking about redemptive historical interpretation, we're not talking about typology, we're talking about wild allegory, okay? And there's no doubt that the Reformed faith has crystallized, uh, you know, crystallized uh, eschatology at this point. Um, and I think in the same way, we have to be humble about our approach to not venerating uh, the classical Trinitarian tradition. So, anyway, uh, let's see here. I'm going to laugh on the computer. Should... Oh, yes, yes, that's right. That's right. I think these guys are... I th- Did you guys reach critical mass yet or what? <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Hey, just remember this episode, you asked. <laughs> hey, we should have a segment called You Asked. <laughs> no, that was so that helpful on Aquinas. It was. It was so good. Yeah. And just uh, obviously the dangers and just how it is, it's really infiltrating the church and the seminaries today. And so, um, Mike, as you said too, just, just understanding that, causing us to use our minds and obviously hold to what the Word of God clearly says yeah yeah amen all right guys well hey what hey that that was a that was a really i think necessary episode i i do want to talk about this more critically people are like probably thinking more critically what in the world (laughs) right but but i do maybe want to do something a bit more um where we're kind of more thoughtful and intentional about the way we approach the subject of thomas i know i'm working with lane uh to get him back on here and finish at least a couple more in-depth discussions on Van Til and his book. Uh, so yeah, man, just stay tuned, Christ and Kingdom, for more episodes like that. Guys, thank you so much for the rich discussion. Everybody, we'll see you guys next time. Make sure you like, subscribe, and share the show with your friends. Never miss an episode. God bless. God bless.